We're continuing our conversation about the Sonoran Desert ecosystem. We just talked about the health of the saguaro, the desert's most iconic cactus. But you know what? The Sonoran Desert is so much more than just cacti. The 100,000-square-mile desert reaches across the U.S.-Mexico border. The northernmost portions in Southern California and Arizona make up just one-third one-third of the desert. The majority of the Sonoran is within the Baja California Peninsula and the Mexican state of Sonora. The region also includes the Gulf of California, which is teeming with life. In fact, Jacques Cousteau once called it the world's aquarium. What a great vision that is. Joining me now to talk more about the rich biodiversity of the Sonoran Desert and the importance of scientific collaboration across the border are my guests, Ben Wilder, director and co-founder of Next Generation Sonoran Desert Researchers, based in Tucson, and Michelle Maria Early Capistran, a conservation fellow at Stanford University and board member of the Next Generation of Sonoran Desert Researchers. She's based in Monterey, California. Welcome, both of you, to Science Friday. Thank you, Ira. Honored to be here. Uh, thanks. Great to be here. Nice to have you. Uh, Ben, let me begin with you. I think that most people, the Sonoran Desert starts at maybe Phoenix and ends in the Grand Canyon, right? Uh, Do you find that to be true? Do you have that feeling? So, you know, I'm born and raised here in the Sonoran Desert. And when I was a little one, yeah, that was kind of true for me. I grew up with the saguaros in my backyard. And the, the desert was this area just around my backyard. But I'll never forget when I first learned that, as you said earlier, the majority of the Sonoran Desert is to the south. It's the entire Baja California Peninsula, almost the entire state of Sonora. We have our own ocean. It blew my mind. And I've honestly been spent my, my life since then exploring that. I, I never knew that either. It is a mind blower. Uh, and uh, Dr. Capistrano, do, do Mexicans feel the same way? They really don't know how big the desert is? Well, I mean, I would chime in that for most people in the United States, it starts at Tucson and ends at the Grand Canyon, right? I, I think in, <laughs> for most people in Mexico, it starts, you know, where, where the carne asada starts, right? So just north of, of where the greenery ends. And at least from the south, from Mexico City, I think it's generally just seen as kind of a vast, empty spot. Northerners would, would think of that very differently, of course. Well, Ben, your, your organization, Next Generation of Sonoran Desert Researchers, is out to disabuse everybody <laughs> of that notion because you're connecting scientists from the U.S. and Mexico, as well as local communities. What motivated you to start the organization? What was missing in the way that the desert has been studied in the past? Well, you know, it, as you said earlier, this is such a vast region, and the inherent nature, the biological and cultural diversity of this region, does not adhere to political boundaries, which are quite often arbitrary. And you know, I was coming of age uh, as a scientist in this region, and, and with a couple collaborators as well at the beginning of our careers, and we were looking around and and really seeing like. Where is this larger community? Does a larger community exist that that shares a passion for this region and is studying this? And we didn't know the answer to that. It's so important because this region doesn't adhere to these boundaries. We need we need to be linked. There needs to be connection to properly understand and both work to conserve this region. And so the the next generation Sonoran Desert researchers or engine was born 
from this desire to understand if this community exists. And it started with a single meeting in 2012, which the answer to that question was a resounding yes, this community mm. exists, but we're fragmented by, in 2012, the, the increasing fragmentation and, and strong east to west border of the, the U.S.-Mexico border was digging in. It's dramatically increased since then. So that is a huge impediment, but also a, a kind of an increasing silosization or creating of boundaries of, across areas of research or disciplines. So trying to bridge the border and to link ways of seeing the world is really where Engine was born. And, and from that one meeting, it started a movement of creating a platform for collaboration. Michelle, did, did you decide to become part of this research collaborative because you agreed with this mission? Certainly. Yeah, I was really excited to see a much broader community. I joined NGEN when I was a PhD student, and I was based in Mexico City doing my fieldwork in Baja California and feeling a little isolated, actually, because, you know, there weren't a lot of people in my physical location who were working in the same area. So being able to connect with a much broader community with the same passion for, for the desert and the sea was just extraordinary. Mm. Ben, you talked about engine and you used the term interdisciplinary research. Talk a bit more about what that means. I think these terms interdisciplinary and then I'll use transdisciplinary here too are honestly a bit jargony. But when I really had them broken down for me by my colleagues that we were creating engine with, it really honestly has shaped, helped transform the way I approach science in my career and kind of almost how I go about my life. And so what I mean by this is interdisciplinary is, an, is trying to use different disciplines or perspectives to understand a question. Let's say you go out to try to understand what um, diversity exists in a region. This is a very important aspect that Engine uh, leads in is trying to uh, fill the gaps of, of knowledge. And so you have a, a botanist, someone looking at the plants, an entomologist looking at the insects, and maybe even have a geologist. Um, but each person is kind of staying within their own space, their disciplinary practice, but you're, you're talking across those. One of the things that Engine really strives to, and where the magic really happens, is a transdisciplinary approach. And what that means is putting on the lenses of someone else's view of the world and, and incorporating that into your own approach. And so... I mean, I'm a botanist by practice, uh, but I'm going out with a geologist and I'm not, I'm putting blinders and I'm not looking at the plants. I'm trying to look at where the faults are or what rocks make this up. And then uh, lo, lo and behold, now I understand why the plants get, are growing there. But even beyond that, it's merging with the social practice. And one of the things I love working with Michelle is, is her background is with social science. And my goodness, when we've worked on projects, you know, Michelle will bring up ideas that I've never even considered because it's not how I've been trained or I don't factor in it. And I realized that, oh my goodness, like thinking about, especially in conservation efforts, what we need to be factoring in so much more than just the biological. And so it's these cross, it's talking across disciplines, across worldviews, and really merging those that elevate us to kind of a, another plane, a higher plane that makes so much more possible that, that otherwise is not. In terms of transdisciplinary also, and you know, I totally agree, it's definitely jargony, but I think it can be summed up pretty well as looking at multiple academic or scientific disciplines plus non-academic collaborators. So I think kind of the magic also happens in integrating people who aren't trained in, in conventional 
you know, present day science. So that includes indigenous communities, rural communities, different people from different sectors. So Engine isn't just academics, it's also nonprofits, it's also government. All of us participating as individuals, not in representation of our institutions, but people with all sorts of different experience and different aspects of, of how conservation happens on the ground as well as is in the lab. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I want to talk uh, more now, uh, Michelle, uh, a little bit more about the Gulf of California. I hear it's a really cool place to study. When most people think of desert ecosystems, they're not thinking about something that's along the sea. So tell us about what's going on there a bit. Yeah, well, it's incredible. I mean, the, the Gulf of California is, is a national treasure of Mexico. It's one of the only seas, if not the only sea, that's entirely within one country's uh, jurisdiction, right? So that makes it very important to protect. And I just remember the first time I saw the Gulf of California when I was uh, starting grad school, it was just mind-blowing seeing cactus growing next to the ocean, right? That was something I'd never <laughs> seen before, you know, used to right. palm trees and seeing this contrast of this very uh, like arid land. I think arid is perhaps has kind of a connotation that's not great, you know, because this land is incredibly rich and biologically diverse and just has this extraordinary amount of life. But then you turn to the oceans and it's just absolutely astounding. I mean, there are five different species of sea turtles. There's all sorts of different species of you know, whales, dolphins, porpoises, sea lions. Uh, mm. And what, what's really incredible is it's a place where kind of uh, cold and warm water meet, right? So you get maximum biodiversity in these places where different ecosystems collide with each other, what, what scientists call ecotones. So the Gulf of California is a really important uh, ecotone in, in terms of the ocean, right? It's where the tropics meet the temperate waters. So it's a place where you can see, you know, tropical fish and sea lions together. I think it's probably the only sea in the world that has these type of conditions. So it's just an incredibly, incredibly rich and, and special place. Now, let, let's talk about the, the green sea turtle, because I know you study that in particular, and your work incorporates the knowledge of local communities who live along the sea, and they they bring some some knowledge that you can use with them, right? Absolutely, yeah. I hesitate to say I do it. It's, it's collaborative. Taking a couple steps back, yeah, green turtles are a very culturally important species in, in the north of Mexico. So both indigenous and non-indigenous communities have used them as food, as medicine. They also have a lot of meaning in, in art. They're what's called a cultural keystone species. It's a species that has a very you know special pivotal role in, in how community relates to the natural world. So in my case, I work with communities on the Baja Peninsula side, rural communities. And so these communities for hundreds of years caught turtles for subsistence purposes. They did so sustainably with very limited technology. And in the 1960s, more or less, there started to be a commercial demand for sea turtles when the cities along the U.S.-Mexico border started to grow. So that kind of matched up with the time when there was a lot more uh, fishing technology, outboard motors, there were uh, highways built that allowed that demand to be you know, quickly supplied. And you know, sea turtle populations just dropped dramatically. So now green turtles have been protected in Mexico for over 40 years. Their populations are growing enormously. It's really great news. Basically, the work that I do is trying to talk with the people in the communities, especially the elders who are able to witness the sea turtle populations back in the 1950s and 60s, mm-hmm. and try to reconstruct what the population levels were back then 
basically by interviewing them and learning everything possible because, you know, these guys, they'll forget more about the ocean than I'll ever possibly know. You know, they're people with 50, 60 years of experience on the water that uh, just is invaluable. It's, it's extremely, extremely important knowledge that's not written down in any books. And when they're gone, humanity loses that forever, right? And this is something that that's happening not only in the Gulf of California, but, you know, around the world. So, you know, I have the enormous honor and, and responsibility of being able to work with people to learn from them and hopefully help their knowledge be a, a fundamental part of how conservation science is carried out. Because unfortunately, you know, historically conservation has a lot of colonial baggage where conservation measures or policies are, are implemented, uh, you know, with varying degrees of, of exclusion, right? So that's something that needs to change. This is Science Friday from WNYC Studios. If you're just joining us, I'm talking with Ben Wilder and Michelle Maria Early Capistran about the Sonoran Desert ecosystem. Ben, you know, we talked about how vast the Sonoran Desert is. Can it be viewed as one ecosystem? So so I think it, it can be conceived as, as one ecosystem with an infinite number of parts. And one of the best ways to think about it as a, a singular entity is actually how an early founding scientist of the concept of the Sonoran Desert, Forest Shreve, stated that the Sonoran Desert is a area of singular biological unity surrounding the Gulf of California. And so that just speaks to the the importance of this body of water that, that Michelle so beautifully described as just kind of a keystone element that so much of the life in the desert con- connects to. And one of the simplest ways is the majority of the precipitation we get in our summer rainy season, the summer monsoon or the Mexican monsoon, is derived from the Gulf of California. And that makes the majority of the entire Sonoran Desert tick. Hmm. And so what would you like to know more about it that you don't know? I'll, I'll, I only have a few minutes left. Let me ask both of you. First, Ben, tell me what, what you need to know or would like to know more about what you study. Oh, my goodness. I, that is probably one of the harder questions you could ask because it, <laughs> because what the beauty is that anywhere you dig into, so I, I continue to, to work on cacti, on those, the description Michelle said of the seeing cacti next to the desert, that captured me and that's one of the main areas of focus. And 25 years in now, i feel like I barely understand anything. And one question leads to another. And so looking at the connection of the diverse waters and how birds uh, bring that nutrients onto land and feel the cactus growth, and then how that ripples out through the rest of the ecosystem. And, and Michelle, you? I mean, I would definitely agree with, with Ben's take. There's, there's always going to be more and more and more to learn. I think it's, it's inexhaustible. I would say, at least for me personally, it's looking into what is the future potentially going to be like? Right, because this is also a an area that has all sorts of different human pressures. Climate change is going to have a whole bunch of of effects that you know we really don't know yet. You know what they're going to be, and I think we need all hands on deck right now to face those challenges and hopefully do it in a way that's more equitable and more just. Are the green sea turtles are they going to migrate because of climate change? Certainly in the Pacific, we're seeing green turtles moving farther and farther north. So the work I'm developing now is on the Pacific side, partly in the Sonoran Desert. And what we're trying to do is look at what fishers and what coastal communities know about green turtle habitats and basically use them to map 
where green turtle habitats are today and then project that onto the future and see where they might be in 30 or 50 years. So we are seeing more and more turtles in Southern California, for example, which seems to be a new phenomenon and the populations are really taking off. And so, yeah, we're, we're going to see a lot more turtles interacting with urban areas, for example, or just moving into places where they're not expected, right? So a lot of changes are going to happen. Also, sea turtle sex determination depends on temperature, right? So above a certain temperature, they'll be either male or female. So one problem that's starting to happen is that a lot of populations are no longer producing enough males. That's going to be a big problem in the future. We've got to end it there. We have run out of time. Such fascinating work. I'm jealous of you guys being able to go study all of this stuff. Come and visit, please. Anytime. (laughs) Absolutely. I want to thank my guest, Ben Wilder, director and co-founder of Next Generation Sonoran Desert Researchers based in Tucson, Arizona. Michelle Maria Early Capistran, David H. Smith Conservation Fellow at Stanford and board member of the Next Generation of Sonoran Desert Researchers. She's based in Monterey, California. Thank you both for taking time to be with us today. Thank you. Thank you.